Hello, and welcome to the podcast. In the 21st century, religion is still vitally important, as we struggle to find purpose and meaning, and with the sense shared by many that there is something beyond the visible. Religion is also, of course, at the heart of many conflicts around the world, and many acts of great decency and courage, and care for the downtrodden and afflicted. The census this week revealed the changing religious composition of large parts of the country. For the first time, under half the population in England and Wales identified as Christian, and those who said they had no religion increased to 37.2% of the population, up from a quarter. However, those identifying as Muslim have risen from 4.9% in 2011 to 6.5% last year. Religious observance may be declining in this country, but that is not the case around the world. And with around 82% of the world's population having a faith, does the BBC adequately cover religion? One of my guests this week does not think so. It's absolutely plain the BBC should be covering it, should be exploring it, should be criticising it. It should be part of the asking questions to power, but it's not doing it. I'll be talking to Ernie Ray, who's just stepped down from presenting BBC Radio Force Beyond Belief and was a former head of religious broadcasting at the corporation. And we'll also be hearing what that renowned atheist Stephen Fry has to say about the issue. Does he think we are spiritual beings? I'll try and find out. It's a huge mistake to think that religion owns the idea of spirituality. But first, this week, the pressure on the BBC has been unrelenting. On Wednesday, Ofcom published its report reviewing the BBC's annual plan. Needs to do more for audiences on low incomes, it said. Next morning, Director of Nations Rodri Talfan-Davis and BBC Director of England Jason Horton were in Parliament in front of the Department of Culture, Media and Sports Select Committee defending their proposals to reduce the number of local programmes on BBC local radio and divert money to digital. The BBC plans to introduce regional programmes on 39 local stations outside of the weekday 6am to 2pm slots. Conservative MP Simon Jupp accused Rodri Talfan-Davis of ripping the heart out of local radio. The BBC director rejected the accusation. I don't accept that premise. I think we're keeping 39 local stations across 39 local stations. Um, we're keeping local bases of at least 25 staff in each of our local bases. We're strengthening the size of our local news teams. We're investigating. We're investing in investigative journalism across 22 of our local bases. This is a. This is fundamentally not about a reduction of service. It is about making sure that our, the portfolio of local services that we deliver across television, radio, and online keep pace with the way audiences are changing. And if I, if I, I don't want to use a lot of data in this presentation, but let me just use one piece of data. If you look at the average 65 to 75-year-old in England today, they rely on online more for news today than they do on radio. That is the level of shift we're seeing. It's not a market shift, it's an audience shift. And we have to make sure that we prioritise our money in a way that delivers maximum value to local audiences. The committee did not seem greatly convinced. And this row will run and run, not least because in Northern Ireland, Radio Foil is facing swinging cuts. There are some in Parliament who are not satisfied with the BBC's religious coverage either. 
even though this week's census results seem to show that some religious affiliations are declining in the UK, though that doesn't mean, of course, that people are becoming less spiritual. Well, with me to discuss the state of religion and ethics broadcasting, I'm delighted to be joined by Ernie Ray, who's recently stepped down as the presenter of Beyond Belief on Radio 4. He did that in October, having been at its helm since its inception in 2002. The programme explores the place and nature of faith in today's world. But prior to that, Ernie was head of religious broadcasting at the BBC for 12 years, from 1989, and in the early 70s, he was an ordained Presbyterian minister who served for three years on the Shankill Road in Belfast at the height, or should we say the depths, of the Troubles. Ernie, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, now, you've left beyond belief, as I said, after 20 years. Um, that rather surprised me. Were you encouraged towards the exit, or did you want to leave? Well, I've been thinking of it for some time. 21 years is a pretty good run. To be honest, it's been less fun since COVID because you don't have people in the studio with you, so it's a, it's a bit distant. And um, I, I, I've sort of felt for the last few couple of years that maybe the time was coming when I should step down and let somebody else take over. So I'm, I'm not unhappy to have left. Uh, well, I'll miss you. I'm sure lots of other people will. But I wondered, doing that uh, programme, where you explored uh, the attitudes of uh, different faiths towards a subject of, of great interest, both could be topical or it could be religious, uh, did you change? Do your, did your own beliefs change presenting beyond belief? They evolved. They evolved in the same direction that they've been going for a long time. I became um, meeting people from so many different faiths and exchanging views. I became absolutely convinced that we're all looking for the one God. You know that um, it, it's patently obvious that had I been born in Saudi Arabia, I'd have been a Muslim. Had I been born in India, the likelihood is I'd have been a Hindu. So we're all on the same path. We're all looking for the same God. We do it in various ways, but there is only one reality. I, I have a lot of sympathy for the Hindus, you know, who believe that there's one underlying reality. Now, I find that reality through the Christian experience, through the person of Jesus Christ, but uh, other people find it in different ways. So I, I think... The whole path of Beyond Belief has confirmed me in, in that path that I was taking. Uh, but, you know, in the 1970s, when you were on the Shankill Road um, in Belfast, you would have been preaching a rather different gospel, wouldn't you? I, I would have been, but, but e even then... You know, the Presbyterian Church uh, in those days was heading in, in a very evangelical, fundamentalist direction, and um, I felt very uncomfortable with that. Even at that time, you know, I, I was working... Primarily, I went to the Shankill Road to, to run a youth club for kids who never came near the church. These were tough guys who were in the loyalist paramilitaries. And some of them did dreadful things, but I became absolutely convinced that had they not been the troubles, they would have maybe have been involved in petty crime, but they'd never have done the things they did. And I saw the same things happening on the other side of the, the peace line. And it was absolutely clear to me that the divisions between Catholics and Protestants were nonsense. You know, they, again, this whole business, we were, we were worshipping the same God. So even then, I was on that path. I may not have got that far down it, but I was certainly heading in that direction. And when you look at the census that had just come out, which talks about a decline in uh, Christian uh, belief in this country and so on, it, it, does any of that surprise you? And do you think, in a way, it misrepresents the reality of people, that most people have a spiritual need and an interest, which might not now be reflected in the way it was in the past? 
I think there's a big turn off from institutional religion in this country. Um, it's plainly obvious in the decline of church attendance. But I was fascinated watching the, the whole events around the Queen's funeral. You know, when I watched those people when she was lying in state in Westminster Hall processing past her coffin, I, I was struck by the great sense of reverence, the number of them who stopped and bowed their heads, a significant number who made the sign of the cross. And there was a great sort of sense of spirituality about the whole affair. And and that was done within a context of Christian worship. But I think the way that it is expressed, and, and 40 years ago, if, if you'd asked people, what religion they followed, they'd have said Christian as a matter of form because that's what you did in this country. It was part of the culture. I think nowadays when they're asked that question, they react in a slightly different way because they are not attached to any institutional form of religion. But I think there's still a great sense of searching and a great sense of spirituality in this country. Does that mean that you think, in a sense, people's beliefs haven't changed, but the way they talk about faith and the way they choose to express it has I think that's right. Um, their beliefs haven't changed. I, I, I think, again, there is a turn-off from, from doctrinal Christianity. I, I think a lot of people, even who go to church on a Sunday, when they recite the Nicene Creed, they will cross their fingers and there will be several parts of it that they will sort of um, mentally duck out of. And I think people are much more comfortable admitting that these days. But I sense that this process has been going on for quite a long time. Now, I wonder whether you and I share the same view, which is that broadcasters on the whole underestimate the interest of ordinary people in matters of faith, belief and spirituality. That broadcasters tend to see uh, religion in terms of buildings and mitres and things like that. And they don't really understand how much... The search for spirituality, we like, still goes on. I remember you resigning um, or ceasing to be head of religious broadcasting and being you being extremely exasperated by the conversations you couldn't have with the people who commissioned programmes. You have to make a distinction between radio and television, Roger. We've had this conversation before many times. Um, I, I, when I was head of religious broadcasting, I never had any issues with the people who ran radio. Now, many of them were agnostic or even atheist, but I remember going into conversations with the controllers of Radio 2 and Radio 3 and Radio 4, and I very often came out having been refused my programme commissions, but I always felt I'd had a fair hearing. I never thought I had been dismissed simply because the issue was religion. It was completely opposite with television. Right through the 90s, um, the controllers of... um, BBC television were people of a secular hue. And because at that time the competition had become so much more intense, the demand to get decent audiences was absolutely top of their list of priorities. And I came out of those meetings absolutely frustrated, not because my ideas had been turned down because they weren't good enough, but because I hadn't had a fair hearing. I I can remember in the early 1990s proposing a series on Islam in Britain. And the controller looked at me and he said, I can't imagine that anybody would be interested in that. Now, you look back on that and there's such an intellectual arrogance about that, 
that it's almost breathtaking. So there was a distinction between radio and television. And although I've been out of it now for 20 years, I think that distinction probably still applies. Well, I remember that when you did resign, I was asked by Jenny Abramski, the director of radio, to apply for your job, your newly vacated job. I was an independent producer at the time. I was presenting three programmes. Uh, I didn't one way want to do it, but I thought, well, I've talked enough about this. I better try. So I wrote a strategy paper, and then I was interviewed by about six people. Uh, none of them had read the strategy paper. <laughs> none of them were interested at all. They were looking out the window. Uh, well, maybe I have that effect on people. But anyway, <laughs> when I said to the controller of BBC Two, what did she want from religion? She said, good programmes. And that was it. So I proposed relationships with the science department, arts department, a whole range of things, etc. There was no engagement at all. I was quite shocked by that. Anyway, I went away, uh, heard nothing. Uh, after two weeks, uh, it was uh, leaked to the newspapers that nobody had been found who was suitable. Uh, so I never had any response from the BBC about that. And then subsequently, as you know, they appointed a very good uh, documentary maker who was an agnostic, uh, to the job, and he quit after about three years. And then most people who seem to have had your job subsequently have either quit or resigned in dissolution. Am I exaggerating? I, I can give you a bit of insight into that whole process, Roger, <laughs> because I, I actually wanted you to get the job. and Because um, I thought that what it needed was somebody who would fight the corner very hard. And I heard from a person who was on that panel, and actually there was one person on that panel who was interested in religion, and you probably know who that was. It's the one-time controller of Radio 2. And I know that at one stage, that same controller of BBC 2 said, we don't want somebody who is taking religion too seriously. And then went on to add, we certainly don't want any vicars. And... I suspect that was because you were ruled out and there were probably one or two other candidates who were ruled out as well. And I was astonished that you're quite right, the person who got the job was an excellent programme maker, documentary programme maker. But I thought to myself, would the BBC have appointed a head of sport who thought sport was a lot of rubbish? Would they have appointed a head of science, somebody who didn't believe in evolution? But they would appoint a head of religion, somebody who was not committed to the actual project. And I thought that was pretty astonishing. What astonishes me subsequently is when you look at the growing Muslim population in this country and the disengagement or suspicion that that community has of society, often society as a whole, and certainly the BBC, you would have thought that the programming opportunities there were immense. I mean, religion is the most important thing in the lives of whole numbers of immigrants to this country, and the BBC doesn't seem to be interested in that. It'll deal with, as it were, different backgrounds when they come into conflict with the police or when there are various problems, but when it comes to dealing with those things which are most important to them, the BBC seems, or television, not to be interested, and neither does now Channel 4. Yeah, I find that pretty astonishing too. It's interesting, the 21 years that I did Beyond Belief, I never had, as far as I know, anybody who refused to come on the programme. And I think, particularly when I think of the Muslim population and, and the, the number of Muslims who came on Beyond Belief, with, with whom I developed a very close relationship, and, and I think they were very happy to become beyond belief, because they knew that 
I had a faith that I took this business seriously and that they would get a fair hearing. And, and I wonder how many other channels there are. And I take your point about Channel 4 used to produce fantastic programs in religion, really good. But it's a long, long time that I saw any program on either Channel 4 or on the BBC or indeed on ITV that actually explored any aspect of religion in depth. It just seems to be a desert place now. You see, what's frustrating to me is there are a lot of independent producers I know out there who'd love to make these programmes. Yeah, indeed. Absolutely. I know them too. And they can only make what's commissioned. Yeah. And, of course, people will say often, oh, don't worry, the market will deliver. Well, the market is not delivering, largely. And this brings up the question of quotas. And we're in a situation now where Ofcom is proposing to relax quotas and to give the broadcasters much more flexibility, as they would put it. And I think they said that the, um, the BBC has long said that quotas restrict the ability to innovate. Well, I don't think that's true in the case of uh, religion and ethics, is it? It's, it's the exact opposite. You know, I, I, I think, again, it's a slippery slope. I remember being told on occasions that you know you didn't need a religious department because other departments would make religious programs, would be interested in religious programs. Well, unless you've got somebody who's in there dedicated to making religious programs, they're not going to happen. And within the BBC, there isn't a religious television department anymore. There's nobody who's function it is to fight for religious programs, to try to increase religious literacy in this country. Now, the head of BBC Religion Radio is Tim Pemberton, who is very committed to the whole project, but he doesn't have any control over television. So I, I will be confident that they, the place of religion and BBC Radio will continue to be fought very hard, but it won't be fought on television. There's an interesting question here about the BBC, which it's decided, and I understand why it's slimming down its management and so on, but now has one person responsible for content across everything. Yeah. Now, Charlotte Moore is highly regarded, yeah. but I think a Renaissance genius couldn't do that job in a real sense because nobody can have that breadth of view across society which will enable them to spot and develop interesting ideas. So what you need, I would argue, is, as it were, barons or, we would say, baronesses, who are, have a real authority in their area, be it science or the arts or religion, whatever, who develop a strategy and who don't tell people what to do, but to say, this is the weight of thing we're looking at and this is where you need to look. And what's the relationship between religion and astronomy for example which is a fascinating area what's the religion with art and so on and as well as doing things which deal with worship of course and with journalism and investigation they explore ideas and relationships now there's nobody there who has the authority or i would argue the knowledge to do that job is there do you know them? no i no no i don't but it is interesting that there is somebody responsible for arts across the bbc that function still exists. I think there's somebody responsible for sports. The Natural History Unit is, con is committed to making natural history programmes. But there is nobody, nobody at the top level who has the ability to make religious programmes happen on television. There's nobody sitting over... I, I remember when Mark Thompson was head of production, a couple of years before he became director general, I remember Mark saying to me, as long as I am here there will continue to be a place for religious programmes on television. 
And, and I said, but what happens when you're gone, Mark? And he said, sort of shrugged his shoulders. And of course, he was gone when he became director general. Um, <laughs> but you know, there is there is and a, and a practicing Roman Catholic. Indeed, um, indeed. And yeah. and you know, and, and again, th- here's an interesting example. When Cardinal Basil Hume died, now Cardinal Basil Hume was a huge figure in British society. He was the person who really brought Catholicism in Britain into the mainstream because he was very English, you know. Previously, Cardinal Archbishops had mostly been Irish. But he was part of the whole establishment thing. Yes, he had a French mother, as it happened, but he came from Tyneside and he wished he could get back there, didn't he? He also was astonishing in terms of his identifying the moment to intervene in the public debate. And so, for example, people who'd been prisoners who'd been convicted incorrectly and so on. He was there championing that case. He was the first person I remember, Cardinal I remember, who had both the confidence and the ability to intervene decisively into our public life. I think that's absolutely right. And when he died, I was absolutely convinced the BBC had to cover his funeral. And uh, the authorities in Westminster Cathedral got in touch with me. And I went to the guy who was responsible for handing out the money to enable that to happen. And uh, you probably know who he is. And um, he said, all we need to do is do a 15-minute pool together at the end of the day, 15 minutes after Newsnight. And I said, no, you've got to show it. And and he was disdainful. And I, I suddenly realized what he wanted. He wanted me to say, no, you don't have to do it. So that whenever the material hit the fan he could then say, well, actually, the head of religious broadcasting said we didn't need to do that. So I, I, I dug my heels in and I said, no, you have got to do this. And he left it to the very last minute. I can remember on, on a Tuesday morning, I got a phone call from Westminster Cathedral to say that if the BBC hadn't committed by Friday evening, they were going to give it to Sky, who wanted to do it. And I, I told the individual um, um, that this was the case. And he promised to ring me on Friday morning. And he rang me at 4.30 on Friday afternoon. Or he didn't ring me, he got his minion to ring me to say, OK, we'll do it. And, and, and that seemed to me to typify it, you know. <laughs> that here was a figure, and, and Mark Thompson told me afterwards that the fact that the BBC covered that indicated to me how committed the BBC was to reflecting Catholicism in this country. I take it your lips were bitten to pieces after that statement. Yeah, I think, I think that's probably right. <laughs> now, I wonder if this is a cultural issue. In the sense, let me say what I think, I probably use the wrong language. But anyway, most people who make programmes are relatively young. The people who go into the BBC tend to come from inevitably sort of liberal, more leftish mm. young, they change later on, but I mean leftish liberal position, sceptical. It's often a very necessary thing to be, and the journalistic presence in the BBC is a very strong, sceptical one. But it means, therefore, that I don't think, inst- whereas you can be pretty sure that, that social issues and, and so on will be investigated and so on, I, I think it means that there are a lot of people there in the BBC who just do not think of religion as being an exciting area of programme making. What it is, of course, because ask all the basic questions, why are we here, how should we behave, etc., etc., and understand why do people behave as they do, what do they think, what causes them to behave like that. So for us, it's immensely rich territory, not, not least the fact that how can you understand how Western Europe is it is, or we are what we are, without in understanding our Christian heritage. 
But for a lot of people, young people in the BBC, it's not a very interesting area. And so they do need uh, to be steered. And they're not. And if they're not steered, they're not going to make these programmes and they're not going to be aware while they are in positions of power how important this area is. And later on in life, when they lose parents or some profound things happen to them, um, this sounds a very old man's statement, but when this sort of thing happens, they suddenly realise how important these issues are, want to explore them, but are no longer in positions where they can, in television terms, which makes it so important in my view, I'm sorry, I'm not being remotely objective here, that there are quotas, that there are authorities within the BBC who can say, look, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I want a series of this weight that addresses this issue. Now, find the best way of doing it. And if you don't do that, I wonder if the BBC can call itself a public service organisation when it comes to the coverage, certainly in television, of religion and ethics. Roger, you've just proven to me that I was right when I thought that you should have been head of religious broadcasting after me. (laughs) I I couldn't have put it better myself. I I, I agree with that 100%. It is so true. And and the the criticism that that the BBC was sort of part of the Church of England establishment might have been true 30 years ago. It certainly isn't true now. It reflects the whole gamut of religious experience. And when you think that about 82% of the population of the world cling to a faith tradition, and what an important part that faith tradition plays in the, the politics, the culture, the society all over the world... It's absolutely plain. The BBC should be covering it, should be exploring it, should be criticising it, you know. It should be part of the... Asking questions to power, but it's not doing it. Well, there have never been more Christians in the world than there are today. And when you look at the Middle East conflict, the number of times you want to bash on the door and say, hold on, there's something terribly... It's the Sunni and Shia split you want to look at yeah, here. Yeah, absolutely. Why aren't you? Absolutely. I mean, it's so essential to understanding that. And also, if you want immigrant communities in this country to really feel part of this country, then we have to listen to them and we have to listen to what they think and explore what they think is most important. And we're not doing that. So your message, Ernie, uh, like my message, I think, to Ofcom, is uh, think again about dropping these quotas and to the BBC, have some centre of authority at the heart of it which actually, who actually sets a strategy for programming in this area. I think that's absolutely right. I think they need that. And when you look at the... I, I know the BBC's cutting its bureaucracy, and rightly so, but when you look at the number of jobs that appear to have little or no purpose today, they really should have somebody who is there to call the people who hold the purse strings, the controllers of television and radio, although I exempt them from much of my criticism, they, we really need somebody who has the authority to say to people, you must do this. Well, some of us still think, finally, that we need Ernie Ray as a broadcaster. Um, have you any plans, Ernie, or are you... Uh, 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 Roger, I are think... You are, fair? are you off fair forever? Well, well, I'm, I'm open to offers, Roger, so if you've anything <laughs> going... Uh, <laughs> um, but, but, no, uh, Beyond Belief was so important in my life. I did it for 21 years. I absolutely loved it. And it seemed to me that if I was going to stop broadcasting, this was as good a time as any to do it. You know, how can you follow that? Well, keep thinking. Anyway, thank you very much. <laughs> My pleasure. Now, a couple of weeks ago, when I talked to Stephen Fry, I just happened to raise the question of how well broadcasters cover ethics. This is what happened. The last thing I want to ask you about is this. 
because you talk about your age and so on, uh, 65, getting older, not as old as me, I have to say. Uh, but you were a prominent humanist. You are a prominent humanist. Mm. Uh, but mm. you've also said that you wish there was more space in broadcasting for the discussion of God and these issues. And mm. one of the questions, Alice, well, we'll make a little space now. One of the little questions I would ask you is this. You describe yourself as a humanist. Why don't you describe yourself as an atheist? Oh, I'm very happy to, if people want to put it that way. But it's a negative word. It literally, A, means not in Greek. And uh, 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 you don't define yourself by what you aren't, or at least that's a shame if you feel you have to. It's much better to define yourself by what you are. Uh, I'm a humanist, which means that I don't use religion or any f faith in a creator or divine being to look at my to look at the world and culture and how people might be happy. But I do see that the spiritual side of life and and happiness and kindness and empathy and love and charity and all words, even faith, faith in humanity, faith in what we can be. So all the words, even sin, transgression, if you like, transgression against the human spirit, against society, against the common good. So all the words that are have been privileged by religion, I think, if, can can be used by humanists, but without God. So in that sense, but... Forgive me, does this mean that you you don't believe in God, but you do believe in a spiritual existence, the potential of it? Elaborate. Yeah, I think uh, it's, it's a huge mistake to think that religion owns the idea of spirituality. Uh, and indeed, all kinds of religions have owned it, including of polytheistic and animist religions, which are the most popular religions in the world. Uh, all through the third world and developing countries, whatever you like to call them, there are animists. There are people who live in the wild and or, or in tribal conditions that are slightly less have have avoided missionaries, and which is the you know the colonial footprint of of religion is is as big as the imperial and military footprint, and they worship the spirit spirit of trees and the spirit of things spirit essence it's i go to language first roger but the most important thing is i think it's really crucial and this is just an example using religion but it's true of all human aspects of belief and and identity and and things we care about i could make a program about my love of churches my love of the anglican communion literally the language of thomas cranmer's prayer book. I know a great deal, I'm not trying to boast here, a great deal more about religion and you know, the liturgy and litany of the Church of England and a fair amount about Catholic Church too and about church architecture, which I really reverence and I absolutely love, you know, in that Larkin way, visiting English churches is one of the great pleasures of my life. And I've I share with my dear old friend Russell Harty, who once said to me, he, he had a wonderful ear for music and he was playing the Great American Songbook at a party and everybody was joining in. And then he suddenly changed to The Church's One Foundation, the hymn, and uh, most people trickled away. And I stayed, joined in, in my awful voice. And he turned to me and said confidingly, I don't think I could ever love anybody who didn't love English hymns. And I said, I'm with you, Russell. And I, so, and I love carol services. I just don't believe there's a God. <laughs> but accepting that, yeah. do you think there's a real opportunity for public service broadcasting? 
to explore that space yeah. beyond the present. Precisely. And, and the contradiction that you can, you know, I mean, in exactly the same way that I love Greek myths, but I honestly don't believe that Zeus and his 11 Olympians live on the top of that mountain. I, you know, but I believe in the myths. I believe in the beauty of them. I believe in the art they have produced. I believe in the culture that they have propagated. And the same, I think, of Christianity and indeed other religions. So I think it's terribly important to understand that you don't make an identity and a foxhole for yourself in some military encampment and say, this is where the atheists live and they hate religion and they hate this. As it happens, I did do a debate that became quite famous with Christopher Hitchens, which was against the Catholic Church as it stood and uh, as a force for good. But that was a political debate about the nature of the Church's power. It wasn't to do with any wish to attack people of faith and devotion and piety going about their daily uh, homilies and obsequies and all the rest of it. You know, but would that's... you go far to say, and I'm thinking now in terms of broadcasting, that unless we understand the role that Christianity, but also now within other communities, Islam and whatever, has played in the formation of our country, mm. we can't fully understand our country, and therefore any public service broadcaster should attend to that. Yes, in the same way that Melvin Bragg did the English and others have done, I think Robert McCram had done things about the English language and how it forms us. Uh, years ago, Bamber Gascoigne made a marvellous documentary about Christianity and, and its formative role in our civilization and, and in everything that we are, even if we don't know it and even if we don't follow the faith. And, and I think those kind of things are deeply important. And um, it would be a shame if someone were to make a programme about Christianity in Britain, say from St. Augustine onwards or, or whoever they chose. And it was purely done by John Carey or a retired archbishop of some kind. It, it you know, it, it maybe should be done by two people, one of whom is, is deeply interested, but, but, but not a believer. Um, and Would Stephen Fry apply for that role? <laughs> I'd be very happy to do a programme like that because I am very passionate about church music, church architecture, church history, church litany, as I say, the whole, the whole schmear, because I'm Jewish. So, <laughs> so, and actually, I know more about Christianity than Judaism. I mean, I've done the odd, you know, I do the odd Pesach, the odd Seder night, the, the Passover thing, and, and, you know, occasionally remember to the odd bit of uh, Hebrew if I'm at someone's funeral or something, but, but I'm... I'm no more Jewish in my religion than I am Christian or Hindu, uh, to be honest. I'm racially Jewish. Yeah. Well, Stephen, I'm afraid that's all we have time for. I hope a commissioner will listen and we will have the privilege of seeing the <laughs> either authored or co-authored series by you about religion in this country. Thank you very much for indeed for talking to us. It's been such a pleasure. I'm afraid I'm really sorry that I haven't found any answers to the e eternal and important questions that your podcast asks, but I'm really grateful to be to be a guest on it. Thank you. But the journey is more important than the arrival. So true. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. And that's it for this week. Do please support our journalism and keep our podcast ad-free by subscribing for just £1.99 per month. You'll find the link to subscribe on our website and in the description of this programme on your podcast platform. And please do let us know your thoughts about our podcast and other guests you'd like me to talk to. You can get in touch on Twitter by using at BeebRoger or on Mastodon using RogerBolton at mastodonapp.uk. 
or you can send an email to roger at rogerboltonspeedwatch.com. And if you didn't know already, this podcast was presented by me, Roger Bolton, and it was produced by Kate Dixon. The sound was by Clifton Bank Studios, and it was sponsored by Quingenti. It was a good egg production. Until next time, goodbye.